If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got the next in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. This time, we're discussing the Georgians with Dr Kate Smith. Kate is a senior lecturer in the 18th century history of Britain and its empire at the University of Birmingham. I called her to ask some of the most popular questions that people are searching for on Google about the Georgians, as well as some questions submitted by you on our social media channels. So we've got a variety of questions, some of the most searched for questions about the Georgians on Google and others come from our readers on social media. So we've got questions from Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. To start us off, let's go back to the very basics. So when was the Georgian period? When did it run to and from? Yeah, so the Georgian period is conventionally seen as running from 1714 to 1837. And there's a slight kind of discrepancy at the end of the period, because people often sort of tack William IV on to the Georgian kings. Um, And then we have this kind of nice period of the Hanoverian monarchs. And then we go into the Victorian period. So between 1714 and 1837, we run through a kind of gamut of Georgian kings. Starting with George I, he succeeds the throne from Anne. Anne, although she had 17 pregnancies, she didn't have an heir that could take over. She didn't have a child who lived to take over from her. So the throne went to um, the Hanoverian monarchs, to George I, and he was the kind of next in line. He was her cousin um, and the next sort of Protestant member of her family. So he takes over in 1714, Um, And in some ways, his uh, period on the throne is significant because we see Britain kind of moving into more of a sort of parliamentary democracy. So the parliament becomes more and more important during his reign. And at this time, we also have what we understand to be the sort of first prime minister of Britain, and that's Robert Walpole. He's also one of the longest serving prime ministers of Britain. So he serves from sort of 1721 to 1742. So obviously, he's really important to that monarchy. And he's really um, important in kind of making changes that happen in Britain at this that time. Um, after George I, we move on to George II. Uh, he's seen perhaps as a slightly more problematic figure in some ways. He spends quite a lot of time sort of traveling and outside of the country. So British domestic policy at that time is really kind of governed increasingly by the parliament. During George II's reign as well, we have um, the period of the kind of Jacobite rebellion. So this is an attempt really on the part of sort of supporters of the Catholic claimant to the British throne, James Francis Edward Stuart, who's known as the old pretender. He's seen as the person who could be taking the throne from the Hanoverian monarchs. And a force is led by his son, who's often kind of colloquially colloquially known as Bonnie Prince Charlie or the Young Pretender. 
So he gathers forces and they try and take over the throne. But that rebellion is quashed. And really, in some ways, that's the end of any idea that the Stuarts will come back and kind of take the throne again and that the Catholics will retake the British throne. So by the end of kind of George II's reign, then we move into George III. And now we're sort of in the period between... um, 1760 and 1820. So this is a really long reign that George III has. He's in some ways the George that the sort of Georgian monarch that we're all perhaps most familiar with because of the length of the reign and because of the madness of King George, which is really infamous. So these problems of kind of mental health that George III suffers from means that towards the end of the reign, as a, another serious bout of mental ill health comes to be, his son takes over. So at the end of his reign, there's a regency where George IV acts as the regent um, between 1820 and 1830. And then at the end, we have William IV. So George III is also kind of really um, important as a monarch because that's the time when Britain loses the American colonies. Um, It's the time of William the Pitt as prime minister. So this is a moment that really kind of shifts um, Britain's place in the world as well. And once the the uh, throne is taken over by George IV, we have a kind of strange um, time really in this kind of period where George IV is seen as a problematic figure because of his kind of abundance and his excess. Of course, he kind of re- creates the Brighton Pavilion. He does all this work on Buckingham Palace. So he spends huge amounts of money, incredibly lavish. And this is at a time of um, radicalism and reform in the country where working class people are trying to claim their rights. And of course, that ends in 1832 with the Great Reform Act. So we see perhaps over the Georgian period, this kind of relationship between both the king and parliament, but also king and people as really changing. So it's a, everyone cl- always claims this for their period, but the Georgian period is one of kind of huge seismic changes in Britain. Um, so next up, we've got one of the top Google searches. And this might be quite hard to answer because it's simply so broad, but it is. What is the Georgian period known for? Yeah, it's a really, really difficult question. And I think one of the things that's maybe interesting about the Georgian period is kind of what it's known for, as opposed to what actually happened within it. So um, our understanding of the Georgian period, I think, or sort of our common understanding of the Georgian period is really shaped by things like period dramas, as kind of most historical periods are in some ways. So we think of the Georgian period, perhaps as a time of like great hair, and amazing clothes, and these in kind of incredible parties um, and forms of pleasure. But it's also important to note that, um, you know, those those great clothes, those incredible forms of pleasure come from kind of global trade. They also come from um, Britain's involvement in imperial projects and exploitation. And therefore, there's a sort of strange history at play, I think, in the Georgian period where you know, we can you can tell this story of radical change and expansion, but there's also a story on the other side of sort of exploitation and a much more kind of problematic history emerges. And I think it's really important with the Georgian period that you try to kind of bear those two elements in mind. Like any period, it's actually really, really complicated. And what Britain is doing in the world is very, very complicated at this time. And that leads us on to our next question, which is also very broad, which is what was George 
Georgian society like? Yeah, so Georgian society um, is interesting because it's not quite the sort of story of inequality that we might imagine. One of the kind of important elements of Georgian society is that we see the rise of the middle class in this period. And one of the reasons why we actually can see the rise of the middle class and why the middle class become important is because they are really key, really key consumers in the marketplace. So one of the kind of elements of the Georgian period is that people are buying more and that things, objects, clothes, etc., it all becomes more important as a way of shaping your identity, of defining your status in society. So we see the rise of this kind of middling sort, this middle class in the Georgian period. At either ends of that then are also this kind of very um, elite, aristocratic, genteel group of people and often they kind of shape our imagination about the Georgian period, the likes of Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. Um, and these are kind of important. So the elite are important as figures that really come to kind of have power in Georgian society and shape our imagination. At the other end of the scale, we also have um, what we might refer to as the kind of lower sort, people who are less um, socially and economically powerful. And um, they are kind of dealt with in different ways over the Georgian period. So by um, the 19th century, we see a change in kind of what the government will do or what the authorities will do with people who sort of fall behind and fall outside of society. But in the Georgian period, one of the ways in which they cope with the poor is by using um, elements of poor relief. So this would often be something that you would claim in your own parish. And the idea of kind of where you are settled as a poor person is really important in the Georgian period, because that dictates kind of who you go to, to ask for help in this period. So it's not quite Although there is, or, or although there are workhouses in the Georgian period, it's not quite the sort of Dickensian story of the Victorian period. It's more about being granted poor relief and parish relief in your kind of place of habitation, being given money to kind of help you keep going during difficult times. But it's tricky because poor people have to sort of negotiate that system and they're often kind of negotiating people within their own community to get that relief. So yeah, it's there's there's lots there's different groups at work in kind of Georgian society. And again, kind of what those groups do and how they're involved in Georgian society changes over the period. It's hard, isn't it, to talk about such broad questions and broad issues because we're talking about more than 100 years here aren't we and so the difference between the start of the period and the end of the period was quite large yeah absolutely um and i think that you know particularly because we're going from sort of 1714 to 1837 and it's not only a change of a change for britain itself so you know we could kind of also talk about how what counts as Britain is also changing over this period. Um, but it's also about how change is happening on a global scale over this period. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to sort of encompass how rapid those changes are. So I think you've answered a lot of the main Google searches there. So we'll move on to a few from our readers on social media. So first up, we have um, James E. Powell 27 on Twitter. And he asked... 
What made German monarchs acceptable to the English? And was there a difference in the way that aristocrats felt about the monarchs and the general population? Firstly, I guess the Hanoverian monarchs were popular and unpopular at different times. And that often was had nothing to do with the fact that they were Hanoverian. Um, but they, um, the kind of main reason in some ways why they are accepted and sort of welcomed to some extent in the early 18th century is because they're Protestant. And so that kind of religious clarity is really important. And although with things like the Jacobite Rebellion, the Catholic question never goes away, um, the fact that the Hanoverian monarchs are Protestant and can continue that religious um, direction is really important. Next up, we've got a question from one of our Facebook users, Robert Keynes, who asks, how influential was George III as a political figure? And he suggests, was he perhaps more um, influential than we generally give him credit for? George III is important because, as I said earlier, he has a long reign. So this is one of the reasons why he's so important. He also, with his wife Charlotte, Queen Charlotte, they end up having you know huge amounts of children. So it's a very, in some ways, it's a very successful reign because they have the heirs, they know kind of what the dynasty holds. The problem as I mentioned earlier with George III, it's really around these kind of questions of mental illness, which come up again and again, or questions of ill health, which can come up again and again. But he has a very kind of successful working relationship with William Pitt. And this allows, um, in some ways, for the reign to be stable as well. Um, so in some ways, he is an important political figure. But by this point, Parliament is becoming increasingly important in politics rather than the monarch. And that is something that's exacerbated by the fact that his ill health means that he's not always entirely present. The monarch isn't always entirely present. Well, that leads us on to another question from Robert Keynes, which is, um, who was the most significant prime minister of the Georgian age? Robert Walpole is often seen as one of the most important prime minister of the Georgian period, mainly because he is a very long-serving prime minister. He's essentially seen as the first prime minister. So he's kind of making changes and in some ways setting up what parliament can and cannot do, what a cabinet government can and cannot do. So he's really important in setting lots of groundwork in place. Um, but if we think about kind of later in the period with William Pitt and William Pitt the Younger, um, they are also really important because they shape that kind of relationship even further by allowing um, Parliament to have greater powers, by thinking about economic policy and taxation on a much bigger scale. So one of the issues at the end of the um, 18th century is, of course, the kind of Napoleonic, the revolutionary Napoleonic wars. And these cost lots of money. So how, as a government, you kind of deal with the issue of taxation becomes really, really important. And that's something that William Pitt the Younger is particularly um, innovative in in sorting and, and dealing with. So moving on to some more societal questions, Talia Price, who's one of our Facebook users, she asked a question that came up also a lot in the Google search, which is what does typical Georgian architecture or design look like and what are the reasons behind it looking that way? So one of the, there's lots of different um, architectural styles in the 18th century. So in the mid 18th century, 
um, Georgian society becomes really captured with the Rococo, which is lots of, it's very kind of abundant, lots of swirls, lots of um, lines and extravagance in some ways. And then this gets taken over in the later 18th century by the neoclassical. And if we think about 18th century country houses, that's the style of architecture that we often think about. Or if we think about, um, you know, Georgian houses more broadly, that's what we think about. And it's all about the the idea of trying to achieve symmetry in architecture becomes really important, but it's also a nod to the classical world. And this is something that the Georgians are really interested and involved with. Lots of young men and some women went out on the grand tour, going to Italy, seeing this classical architecture, seeing the ancients becomes really, really important. Um, and so this is something that gets translated into Georgian architecture with the idea of the kind of pendant and then the pillars that fall below it. And this is a nod really to ideas of sort of rationality and control and taste. So it's all quite paired back. And then at the same time, if we think about the interiors of Georgian homes, often those that survive in our contemporary world are often quite faded and pastely but the colors that kind of that pastel palette of the georgian period was actually quite vibrant at the time so kind of pinks and blues and yellows these are the things that kind of make up the georgian interior but again it's seeing those against white so again it's about a kind of paired back aesthetic that allows um, particular objects or allows for light to come to be. Um, and these are important elements within people's homes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They were very concerned about losing things, both on a kind of everyday individual level, but then also at the level of the American colonies. And this preoccupation perhaps shapes how Britain is in the world and how British society and Georgian society comes to be. Picking up on the idea of design and aesthetics, um, Josephine Wong, also on Facebook, has asked another question about design, which is uh, what were the popular styles of clothing and hairdos in the Georgian period? One of the kind of big um, styles of the Georgian period is really about kind of hair. So hair is really important. And for women, hair just gets bigger and bigger and bigger over the Georgian period. And there's all sorts of sort of parodies and satire about this, the idea that kind of women are essentially kind of walking around with menageries in their hair as they get bigger and bigger. For men in the Georgian period, it's really important that they wear wigs. And this is a real sign of adulthood. So when we, um, in 18th century newspapers, often apprentices or servants might run away from their position and their employer would try and get them back by putting a little notice in the newspaper. And one of the things that they often mentioned for boys was whether or not they were wearing a wig. And holding on to a wig was important because it's a really valuable item, but it's also a sign of that boy's adulthood and their manhood. Um, at the same time for men, breeches are really important. So there's quite close-fitting trousers that finish just 
below the knee. And this means that actually men's calves become really important and being able to kind of show off your calf and um, was a real sign of sort of virility and manliness in the 18th century. And if you think about Georgian society, you know, one of the things that people were keen on was dancing. And therefore, the calf is some and, and dancing and walking allowed the calf to kind of be shown off to its full potential. For women, um, one of the changes that we see in fashion over the Georgian period is that we see people become really engaged with wanting to dress in cotton. So cotton is this fabric um, that comes from the Indian subcontinent at the start of the 18th century. The Indian subcontinent is the kind of global centre of cotton production over the early modern period. And it's really innovative. It creates these really high quality fabrics that are often very colourful. And they have different processes for painting and printing on these fabrics. And they come up with these just kind of beautiful designs that become really desirable in British society. Um, This means, of course, that Britain tries to eventually kind of take over the cotton industry. And by around 1815, Britain itself actually becomes dominant in the cotton industry. Um, And so this this desirability for these kinds of objects is one of the reasons why Britain starts to make a, a leap into its imperial projects in Asia. Um, So if we think about the setting up of the East India Company, this is something that's set up at the start of the 17th century by Elizabeth I. And one of the reasons why the East India Company is set up is because Europe realises that Asia has all these luxury goods for sale and they're really desirable and, and Europe essentially wants to get hold of them. And right at the heart of all those consumer goods and Asian luxuries is cotton. So... What we see over the 18th century is more and more Indian cottons being imported into Europe. And this is at a time where Europe has lots of fledgling cotton industries of its own. So one of the ways in which Europe is able to grow its industry, despite importing all of this cotton from the Indian subcontinent, is by using protectionist policies, basically. So they make it harder and harder to buy and sell and wear Indian cottons in Britain. And one of the ways that they can do that, one of the reasons that they can do that is because there are huge markets for selling cotton also in the Americas and in Africa. So one of the things that the European East India companies are doing is they're shipping this Indian cotton into Europe And then as these kind of protectionist policies come up, they start to actually sell it on to Africa and the Americas. And this means that once behind this protectionist wall, Europe and particularly Britain has grown its own cotton industry. It's able to benefit from these structures that the East India companies have set up. They know that there's going to be a a willing market not only in Britain and in Europe, but also in Africa and the Americas, and that those East India companies and their merchants essentially kind of control it. So we can kind of go from these sort of fabulous cottons that people were so excited to wear and became so important for the way the Georgian period looked and the Georgians looked. But we need to also realise that these cottons are produced and come to Britain because of Britain's imperial projects. 
I think the way that you answered that question, it reflects back to your first answer, actually, in that when we think about the Georgian age, we often think about parties and dances and lovely houses and Jane Austen. But all of that was only built on a darker and more sinister legacy um, of the Georgian era. So next up, we have a question from Averfits13 on Instagram. Great name. And they ask, how did the Georgians enjoy themselves? Yeah, so the Georgians kind of invented lots of different ways to enjoy themselves over this period. One of the... um, entertainments that they were particularly keen on was pleasure gardens so they had the Vauxhall gardens and the Ranley gardens and these were kind of interesting sites they were full of art they had promenades so it's all about wearing your wig putting your hair up putting your cotton frock on and heading out along the promenade so that everybody could see how fashionable you were so these were sites where people met and they were sites where people were seen really importantly um, but they were also sites of masquerade so this is something that's really important, particularly at Ranley Gardens. And it's interesting to think about because, again, we see this issue of kind of trying to... The Georgian period is all about trying to kind of put a face towards civility and politeness. And in some ways, that's why masquerades were so popular, because you were allowed to kind of dress as somebody else. You were allowed to put, obviously, a mask on. So women particularly became very anonymous. And this allowed them to act and be in different ways. It was quite a subversive um form of entertainment in some ways and if you look at kind of famous novels of the 18th century like Cecilia by Frances Burney she is that's a novel all about an heiress in London and she goes to some of these masquerades and she talks about the difficulty of not quite knowing who people were so this was also a space in which kind of sexual relations could also kind of operate with a little bit more anonymity so it was quite risque and by the 1780s masquerades had become sort of too problematic and essentially kind of disappeared from the pleasure gardens so alongside the pleasure gardens um people also engaged with new cultural forms so they went to the they went to the new museums such as the british museum which was set up in 1753 and this was set up after sahan sloan um died and wanted to bequeath his um collection to the nation he had been a physician to the jamaican governor he collected all these incredible things and um a subscription a kind of um fundraising activity took place to get the money together to actually kind of buy the collection house it in the british museum alongside the british museum we also see the opening of art galleries so the royal academy of arts is set up in 1768 and it becomes increasingly common to have public displays of art and when those kind of public displays of art begin again it's very much about going out in order to look at other people and be seen yourself rather than actually looking at the art. But over the late 18th century, it becomes more and more um, important to actually look at the art and look at the art in particular ways. So people are out and about doing things. They're also out and about shopping. Shopping becomes a big element of Georgian society. We see the move from shops that were often operated through a window, so you would just do the transaction through the shop window, to the idea of shops as spaces in which you would enter and you'd engage with the shopkeeper. And obviously there would be um, shop displays, which were meant to kind of capture the eye and encourage you to spend more. So people were out and about doing all these things in city spaces, but they were also finding new ways of 
having a good time of enjoying themselves in their own homes. So this was a period of kind of the expansion of print culture, daily newspapers become a thing, reading daily newspapers become really important, particularly in kind of masculine cultures. But also we see the birth of the novel. So we often think about Daniel Defoe, Robinson Crusoe or Samuel Richardson's Pamela as these kind of early forms of the novel. And um, alongside poetry, novels grow as a really important literary genre and literary form that people increasingly engage with. So in their homes, they are reading as a form of kind of enjoying themselves, but they're also kind of eating and drinking. And again, the things that they're able to eat and drink are really shaped by this global world that Britain is engaged with. So if we think about the tea table, which becomes really important in our period, then all of the items on the tea table are things which are required because of global trade or because of imperial projects. So tea is really important here, imported from China by the East India Company again. And over the 18th century, probably by the 1760s, tea becomes an everyday um, beverage for the majority of people in Britain. And one of the reasons why it becomes an everyday beverage is not only because the East India Company is importing um, tea, but because of the high taxation on tea, smugglers also become really involved. And smugglers are important in keeping the price of tea down, but also in getting it to ports around the country, which are a bit smaller, which means that over Britain as a whole, tea becomes a kind of everyday thing that they consume. Um, Alongside tea, obviously, they might have sugar in their tea. Sugar is something um, which comes largely from the Caribbean or from Brazil. So the Caribbean islands, St. Kitts, Barbados, Jamaica, these all become um, British colonies. So Jamaica becomes a British colony in in 1665, so before the Georgian period. Um, And one of the reasons why Jamaica is so important is because essentially it's turned over to sugar production. Um, And the way in which sugar is produced is through the labour of enslaved Africans who are kidnapped on the west coast of Africa and brought over to Jamaica. And there's lots of descriptions about the um, working conditions and the enslavement conditions to which these people were put. And um, this in some ways is very removed, though, from from Britain itself. But it's absolutely key to how we might understand sugar and um, the involvement of um, British landowners as plantation owners in Jamaica. These are people who are gaining huge amounts of wealth from these plantations, which only operate through the violence that's used to enact enslaved labour in these locations. Um, And then alongside the tea and sugar, we have the porcelain cups, of course, which also come from Asia, and the mahogany table, which is also kind of brought, this is material brought over from the Caribbean and from Brazil. So the ways in which Georgians are able to enjoy themselves in the 18th century and the early 19th century, again, is very much shaped by these global connections. Yeah, and I think that's important to recognise, isn't it? So another question that we have from Instagram is what was life like for young people in the Georgian era? So 
as in most periods, obviously, it's really dependent on where and to whom you're born. And because there is no such thing as kind of general education in the 18th century, there isn't a huge amount of social mobility. But one of the things that really shapes life for young people in this period, therefore, is work. Lots of people go into apprenticeships for seven years in order to learn a trade or they go into domestic service. And for women, this for young women, this is a particularly important form of work. So 75% of the domestic labour workforce is made up of women. And these are the people that are really keeping Georgian homes going. And often, you know, people up and down the social scale in many ways employ servants. So you might have a servant who would come in and help with the washing for a single day or have the kind of live-in servant. If you have a much larger household, you might have live-in servants, you might have multiple servants. But servants are so important to Georgian society that when the, the government tries to bring in a tax on servants, when it tries to bring in a tax particularly on female servants, um, this becomes something that is really fought against. So in 1785, they have this female servant tax and there's lots of uproar in a way that there isn't when they try and bring in a tax on male servants who are often much more of a kind of luxury item and often are much more about status. Whereas it's these kind of young women who often become domestic servants as young adults. And this is something that they engage with before they get married often, although some go on to kind of work in this um trade all the way through their lives. So thinking about kind of domestic service and how these households kept going is really important and really shapes the lives of lots of young people in the Georgian period. So moving on, we've got a question from Rob Porter, who um, got in touch on Facebook. And he asked, what were attitudes to sex like? Um, And within that, how acceptable were sexual relations between same-sex individuals in the Georgian era? Yeah, so the Georgian period is kind of interesting because before, in some ways, the sort of 1770s, 1780s, actually there's lots of space for, there's lots of tolerance for lots of different kinds of fluidities for same-sex relationships, you know, to a certain extent for same-sex relationships, for different kinds of sort of sexual engagement. And as I said before, things like the masquerade were spaces in which people could engage with sexual relations with different people or different kinds of sexual activities. So there was space for that. Um, There's also, in the Georgian period, some fluidity around gender. So a really famous example of this is Peg Woffington, who goes on stage as Sir Harry Wildair in the 1740s and 1750s, and she's hugely popular as this character. It's a really important part of kind of theatre culture. By the 1780s, actresses who try to make a similar move are really parodied and become really problematic. So there's lots of arguments about kind of why this cultural change happens in the later part of the 18th century. And some historians talk about how, you know, this is in reaction to the sort of loss of the American colonies after the American Revolutionary War. Um, trying to kind of get greater order and control of Georgian society. But we do see something of a a shift that happens in the later 18th century. Fluidity and tolerance for fluidity starts to slip away and we start to kind of head to the greater policing of kind of order and categories and boundaries. Next up, we've got a question which is quite tricky to answer, to be honest, from Jay Golden Fleece on Instagram. And their question is, 
How different was the English spoken then to the English spoken today? That is a really, <laughs> that's a difficult one. I mean, one of the really interesting things about the past is that it's really difficult to know. We have no recordings. We don't, we have no video. We have no real idea of how people spoke. The only hints that we have to this are, are when dialogue is recorded in some way. So often, you know, if we think about the theatre or novels, but even then that can be a kind of problematic um, gauge for how English was actually spoken. But we know that from actually kind of English language in the 18th century, it's not a million miles away from our contemporary language by any means, but it there are different co- conventions, there are different forms of formality. And, you know, the idea of how you greet somebody the need to kind of address hierarchies, these are things that are important. And as I said before, you know, one of the really important elements perhaps of Georgian society is this idea of kind of civility and politeness. So greeting people, knowing how to do that, knowing what the rules might be are really important. Quite a broad question I wanted to put to you, but actually as a Georgian historian, I think I might know your answer already, is... Is the Georgian period the most important period in history? Um, Robert Keynes on Facebook, he says, given that it spans a period of agricultural, financial and industrial revolutions, not to mention the American and French ones as well. So I think that he's arguing that it is. What do you think? Well, obviously, I'm going to say yes. Um, I mean, I think it's really interesting because this, because of things like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, we politically, it is a period of really significant change. And, you know, some historians look at the way in which after the French Revolution, people actually kind of see the past in a different way after that's taken place, because such a seismic event has happened that they feel sort of a rupture has taken place and they're removed from the past before it. So it is a moment of such change. The global connections that come to bear the the amount of wealth that's being created, particularly in Europe, is really changes what Europe is and what it can do. And the um, movement out to, to kind of different through different imperial projects. Um, these are kind of really important. It's a really important period for Britain. And um, it's a Im- period which is really kind of marked by change. And finally, I have one final question, which is just from me which is, what do you think are the questions that we should be asking about the Georgian period? That's a really good question. I think, you know, the important questions that we should be asking about the Georgian period are about its wealth creation. Where did Britain's wealth come from at this time? And we really have to look to its imperial projects. We really have to look to slavery to understand why this is a period of such expansion in wealth and how this allows kind of industrial change to take place. Where does all that money come from at the start? I think, you know, we also need to be asking questions in the Georgian period about the sorts of preoccupations people had. So in my own kind of work, I'm really interested in how people were actually quite preoccupied by loss in this period. So we often see it as a period where, you know, people were buying more and Britain was expanding. But I think part of that is because they were very 
concerned about losing things, both on a kind of everyday individual level, but then also at the level of the American colonies. And this preoccupation perhaps shapes how Britain is in the world and how British society and Georgian society comes to be. That was Dr. Kate Smith. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. And if this has sparked your interest about the Georgian era, we've got a load more material for you to explore on our website at historyextra.com forward slash period forward slash Georgian. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Mark Honigsbaum will be discussing pandemics through history. Hey.